and then, here and there, and always at sexpotcomedy.com. Next storyteller. Next storyteller. Next storyteller. Story Welcome to the Narrators Podcast. This podcast collects stories that were told at the Narrators, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. The show takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at the Buntport Theater in Denver, Colorado. It's been such a rainy summer so far here in Denver. The other day I found myself stuck downtown with a handful of other cyclists under a bridge on the Cherry Creek bike path, waiting out a thunderstorm. We all took obligatory Instagram photos and watched as the hailstones turned to fat raindrops. The water from the streets above us poured out of the drainage pipes, across the path, and into the Cherry Creek. As the storm climaxed and the sky began to clear, other cyclists grew impatient and pedaled off, but... I stayed behind because the story you're about to hear still haunts me. Back in April 2013, the narrators asked Denver Diatribe, another podcast that I co-produced, to take over for one night. It was the very first time that I hosted the narrators, and the theme of the evening was Colfax Avenue, which is easily Denver's most infamous street. This story comes from Jared Mayer, one of the co-hosts of Denver Diatribe. Jared is a former investigative journalist and staff writer for Westward. In the past decade, he has worked for a variety of news outlets, including Face the State and Free Speech TV. These days, he's a producer and director at Craftsy.com and a kick-ass dad in Sunnyside. Hi, everybody. So I have a Colfax story. It's a story about a story that I actually tried to write over several years, and uh, from every single angle that I tried to come at it, I couldn't seem to make it work. And it's always been a nagging feeling in my head. It still revisits me sometimes. Sometimes the stories that you don't tell are the ones that you uh, tend to remember. Uh, and this story is a, is a Colfax story. It actually starts at a place called Lower Colfax. How many people here know that there's a, a Colfax, but there is also a Lower Colfax? Anyone familiar? Okay, so this is how would I describe it. If you keep going west on Colfax, you go over the highway, you see the stadium right there, you're in the viaduct, so you're up above the ground. Below you is Lower Colfax. It's an actual street, and um, it's in a neighborhood called um, Sun Valley. And our story, uh, the story starts with a, uh, a woman who lived right there in Sun Valley, and she was taking her son, she was a young mother, taking her son for a walk in her stroller one May afternoon, uh, maybe early evening, in uh, Rudy Park right there. And the area around Sun Valley, if anyone's familiar with it, it's, it's, it's such a, a weird place to be because on one hand, you're buffeted by the huge uh, Sports Authority field parking lot. You're buffeted by a, um, the river and the highway, and you're just in this valley of industrialness and uh, nothing, basically. But there's a real neighborhood there where people live. But if you go into Rudy Park and you're walking along the bike path there, it's actually pretty nice. There's a creek, um, water, and trees. Uh, she's walking, and it starts to hail. Uh, hail gets pretty heavy, and so she follows a bike path, under where it goes in a tunnel underneath the roads. Um, there's a kind of a underpass right there. And so she goes underneath there and uh, it's hailing really hard and she's waiting. She calls her, her, 
her mother-in-law tells her that, you know, I'm here with uh, Matthew, was a baby, he was about two years old, and we're just going to wait out this storm. Uh, The water on the creek starts to get a little higher. Pretty soon it starts to jump over off the creek and onto the bike path. It's getting her feet wet a little bit. Before she knows it, it's getting her ankles wet. It's up to her knees. It's up to her waist. Pretty soon she has that sinking feeling where she's being pulled backward. You guys all know that. If you ever get stuck in a tide and you are slowly starting to slip, she grabs hold of something, a, um, a concrete wall with one arm. With the other arm, she has the stroller, and she's holding onto it as tightly as she can. And I was actually caught in the same storm. This was in 2007. I was riding my bike home, big hailstorm. I probably took shelter in a bar or something like that. Uh, and I was, uh, storm ended and I come out and there I'm riding my bike home, wanting to cross 15th street down there by Confluence park. And there's all of these law enforcement emergency vehicles, big spotlights shining into the water and the water is high. It's probably one of the highest I've ever seen it as far as like cubic meters of water. I think it was triple the normal amount. And it it was this raging rapid sort of pushing through Confluence Park there. But it wasn't like, you know, the mountains raging rapids where there's white water and things like that. This is like the dark stuff where it's all the rainwater pushing through every single, uh, you know, sewer and storm sewer and alleyway and pushing all that blackness and gunk from the city and cramming it right down through the Cherry Creek and the South Platte River. And uh, a crowd had gathered and everyone is looking because there's uh, a baby boy that is missing in the water. Everyone's looking and trying to see if maybe, maybe you can see something. Is it a log? Is it a 40-ounce bottle? Or maybe it's a a, a boy floating by. Um, and this was the amount of force and pressure in terms of water that was, uh, you know, uh, a few hours earlier was bearing down on Elsha because you see where she was there, it's called Lakewood Gulch. And imagine that on there on the West side that all the houses were taken away and it was, uh, nature had sort of shaped that Gulch. So all of the, um, it was the tributary, the place where all of the water would come for, for miles and would all funnel into that gulch. So when it started raining, all the water from those west side neighborhoods like um, West Colfax and uh, Westwood and Barnum, all of that was flowing down, flowing down into the Lakewood Gulch, flowing into that creek, and flowing directly into the tunnel where Elsha was taking uh, shelter. And uh, this wasn't a normal tunnel. This was actually a, just basically a, um, a big water conduit. That's what it was designed for. It was actually, the technical term, I think, was a uh, concrete box conduit. And that's what it was. And it was designed to just take tons and tons and tons of water and force it into this little tiny area, this little pinhole of an area. And all that force and pressure was pushing her down. And uh, before she knew it, she... She lost her grip on the stroller, sees the stroller float away. Uh, Pretty soon the fire department is there, and they're able to throw a rope down to her. And uh, the first thing she asks is, have you found my baby? And they say, no, we haven't. And then she yells something like, I don't want to live without my baby. She lets go. And uh, so the way it... uh, the way it turned out was she was able to be rescued a few hundred yards down the river. 
the stroller was found maybe half a mile down the river, and then two days later, the body of uh, baby Matthew was found two and a half miles down the Platte near Riverside Ceremony, which is actually where he was uh, eventually buried. So, uh, you know, I was there when this happened. It was a big news story, right? TV crews, trucks, uh, both daily news. We had two daily newspapers at that time. We're covering it. Uh, huge outpouring for this tragedy, for this this natural event, which had, you know, taken the life of this baby and just, just the drama of it. And so being a storyteller, being a reporter, I knew that there was a great human drama story there, right? And uh, I didn't want to sort of chase the ambulance right there or jump on the bandwagon. So I didn't really approach the family for uh, a few months. It might have been six months later, but then I started writing them letters and things like that. And the, the funny thing about Denver and water, it's such a dry place, right? We were essentially in the high desert. So we don't really think of, of water as being an issue. We look at the Cherry Creek, half the time it's barely a trickle. But the funny thing is, is that Denver's history is inextricably linked with water. It's been shaped by water because when water does come, it comes in big flash floods and people get lulled into a sense of complacency. Even in the 1800s when they were settling, before Denver even existed, there was multiple settlements on along um, around what is now Confluence Park. And, uh, you know, they would build their buildings right up on the banks. And every 20 years, a big flood would come and just wipe everyone out. Did it every 20 years up until the 1920s uh, when they finally decided to invest and built, built those huge walls along the, uh, along the Cherry Creek, decided to invest to build a dam, other things to sort of stop this force of nature from imposing its will on us and we can control that. Uh, so I, uh, was able to get an interview a few months later with, uh, the grandmother lived right there in Sunnyside. And I thought, okay, great. Here's my great human drama story. I can go get the story of the mom losing the baby, what it's like, the history of water in Colorado. And I went and met with the, with the grandmother lives right there in Sun Valley. Um, house is kind of a you know, a bungalow-type house, but surrounded on every single side by, like, industrial buildings and factories. Um, and I, you know, she took me inside. I, you know, asked them a lot of questions. I got to see the room of baby Matthews that they still haven't touched. It's still all the same. Um, and I started talking to her about this. But the more I talked to her about this story that I thought that I was going for, this human drama story, the more I found out it wasn't about water. This isn't a water story. This is a story about a neighborhood because the grandmother, um, her name's Margaret, she was angry. She was angry at the city because for her, this wasn't a story about an incident that happened out of the blue. This wasn't a natural disaster story. This was a story about a neighborhood, Sun Valley, that's been neglected by the city of Denver and the state for basically its entire history. Um, so you can think about every single bad social policy and bureaucratic um, neglect. It, Sun Valley is the poster child for that, whether it was uh, rezoning, rezoning the neighborhood as industrial in the uh, early 1920s, whether it was putting the uh, Valley Highway, I-25, right down the middle of it and buffeting it on both sides, whether it was um, taking the utopian ideas of building public housing, right, in the 1960s and 50s, there was a lot of public housing. Well, they put a bunch of public housing in this isolated valley, 
basically, and uh, and basically warehouse the poor there. And that's why today uh, Sun Valley is the poorest neighborhood zip code, I think, in Colorado. $8,000 per capita income per person, um, you know, pollution from the industrial zone. And so for grandma, this was actually a story about that, about the city not caring enough to help her daughter. And here's why. Because that that those culverts were designed for water. And sometime in the 1980s, they decided to put a bike path through it with no signs, no warning signs at all. And grandma says to me, you know, you think that if this would happen in a different neighborhood, if this exists in a different neighborhood, we're on Colfax here, but if we were on the other side of Colfax in uh, Park Hill or um, on the other side of Colfax in Golden, that something like this would have been able to stand, that they wouldn't have had some kind of warning. And it actually turned out that for several years, the city of Denver, the engineers, had had that culvert, had that, those tunnels on a list to be demolished. It was one of the most antiquated, um, you know, in the last 30, 40 years, we've had lots of other ways to mitigate against flood control, and this was one that they needed to get rid of. But it had always been on that list, and no one had ever seen time to bump it up as a priority until this happened. And so all of a sudden, I realized, well, this is actually, this isn't a human drama story. This is a investigative story. Is is the negligence from the city and sort of the policies that put them here, did that lead to this death? So I uh, you know, went through and started asking questions. I started doing Freedom of Information Act requests. I was down at the city building um, going back through old documents. Uh, you know, the answer I basically got was, well, you know, it's tough times for the city where um, there's not a lot of money to go around, uh, you know, we try to put priorities on things, but we can't. But the, th- the thing I knew was there was, when it comes to stormwater, there's a big secret in Denver. If anyone here is a property owner, anyone who owns a house or, or anything like that, there's a fee that you pay. It's a tax, but they call it a fee. It's called the stormwater fee. So what they do is they measure how much impenetrable surface that you have on your lot. So if you have a parking lot, that pay parking lot, you're kind of fucked. But every... What they do is they calculate that and impose this task because the theory is if, if water is falling on it and it diverts into the public storm sewers, well, then we need a way to pay for that, right? And so uh, every single property owner since the 1980s had been paying into this massive fund. But what had been hap- what's been happening and still happening today is that uh, successive administrations have seen the waste or the stormwater fund as their own personal piggy bank to sort of fill holes. Okay, we need to pay for street sweeping. Let's, uh, you know, take money from the stormwater fund. Okay, we need to buy land for, uh, for a land swap for the new city jail. Let's, uh, or landscaping for some other project. Let's use the stormwater fund. So my theory was, well, yes, you can draw a direct connection between this because there was money in there and you guys kept bumping it down. Um, and so I, you know, went after this tact for, I don't know how long, maybe eight months (laughs) while I was working on other things, but, you know, trying to get people that work within the city to sort of admit (laughs) anything. And they admitted that it should have been changed, but to say that I could find that smoking gun, I could never really find it. I couldn't find that thing to make that connection. Because if you're going to accuse someone of, of being negligent in a death of a toddler, well, you better have that. So I... 
I wasn't really able to um, pull that together. And, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was interesting that I spent so much time. I had, every, I had every single piece that I needed. I had the human drama. I had all the technical details. But every time I tried to sit down to write it, I, I couldn't really make it work. And it's one of those stories, like, as, as my binder of research got fatter, the more lost I became because I couldn't, it wasn't a story about human, you know, your standard human drama story in a natural disaster like a wildfire. It wasn't this investigative report. Well, then what was it? It was something, you know, these, this family was in pain. They were struggling to try to get the city to pay them a settlement for their medical bills. And they kept on hitting brick walls. Um, and so as things happened, time went on and I just kind of lost track of the story. It was always there, um, on my desk in the back of my mind, uh, but it's interesting, though, because as, as Ron mentioned earlier, three weeks ago, my wife and I had a baby. And, uh, you know, that every time you go through an experience like that, it tends to shed a new light on things. And going through that experience and in the coming weeks and knowing I was going to do this, I started thinking about that story. And, you know, just, just an aside, uh, labor and, and birth and delivery, there is nothing – you want to talk about not natural? There's nothing natural about labor and delivery, I, I've, I just have to mention it's, it's a cruel joke of evolution that humans have evolved to walk upright. And every time you evolve to walk more upright, your pelvis becomes less apt to be able to deliberate something the size of a, um, you know, the size of a large fruit or something like that through it. And um, all of the, and so what we've had to, develop and you know i witnessed it through nine hours um during my wife's labor but the uterus being this muscle that only exists completely outside of yourself you don't have any control of it it's not like your arm or your you know your any one of your muscles it exists just to just to tighten and squeeze and put pressure from every end to push a child through through an unnaturally small hole right and uh it's, it's beautiful, you want it, but it's not natural. There's nothing natural about it. Uh, whole, and so back to the story, holding my, um, you know, up during the middle of the night, holding my son um, during, the, during these past few weeks, thinking about this, telling this story in, a, in a, a detail that I remember finding out during that time as I was doing this story emerged in my mind. It was that the, the father when he found out that his son had been swept away, uh, his name is Matthew too. He left his job at the warehouse, came down, stood at the river. And when they found he didn't have it, he tried to throw himself into there and he had to be held back. And then after the funeral, a few months after the funeral, he, he did it again. He was still living in the same house, you know, walked up, left a note and walked to the river to throw himself in. And I thought, and I was thinking about that, when I first heard that detail, I just thought it was like really poetically significant from a literary point of view. But, you know, when holding my son, I, I thought about, you know, what it would mean to have this, this thing that emerged out of this abyss, abyss, this child that you loved and you cared for be taken away into that same abyss. Would you go and, and throw yourself back into it? If they be, they're such a part of you deciding to let go of that rope and say, I don't want to live. And, and I want the same, I want the water, the same water that took my son to swallow me too. Um, 
And, you know, I think about that now. I don't really know. I still don't know why I haven't been able to write that story. Uh, it's really, it's really something that um, should lend itself to, to be written about. The the thing I am coming back to is the, the the whole idea of storytelling is unnatural in itself, right? Like these, all these events happen. These things happen all around us, and then we come and we decide that we're going to impose this narrative on top of it, that we're going to take something and take all this chaos of events and and create a story out of it. It's like we're trying to seek meaning out of something. We're trying to force all of this mess, all of this brackish mess of life into this tiny little hole, whether it's on paper or whether you're telling the story. And it's some stories don't lend themselves to be told because what was this story actually about? Was it about um, a natural disaster? Was it about... um, Water was about the history of Denver. Was it about um, poverty and neglect and bad social policy and um, ignoring the poor and fatherhood and motherhood and tragedy? Well, yeah, it was about it was about all of that. It was about it. It was about it. All of it, all at once, and none of it at the same time. So, um, in many ways, it's kind of like the story of a city. How each one of us thinks that. Something happens to us, and it's just the wrong place, wrong time. You get hit by a bus. But there are, there are forces out there putting pressure on every single one of us at every single moment, and we don't even know it. So there's, there's always a larger story that we can't even see. So maybe that's why I haven't been able to uh, write that story. Okay, thanks. Keep it going for Jared Mayer. The Narratives is produced by Robert Rutherford, Aaron Rollman, Mary Robertson, and me, Ron Doyle. I produce and record the podcast with engineering assistance by Josh Johnson, and our founder and executive producer is Andrew Orvidal. The Narrators podcast is brought to you by these amazing sponsors. The great guys at Illegal Pete's and Greater Than Records, who in addition to providing rad burritos all over town, provide great local music and comedy. The next time you need a photographer, remember From the Hip Photo. You can learn more about their honest and unforgettable service at fromthehipphoto.com. Check out the appropriately named Sexy Pizza on their website, sexypizzaonline.com. And finally, by Breckenridge Brewery, making balanced, approachable, and interesting handcrafted beers in Colorado for over 25 years. Check them out at breckbrew.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on your favorite mobile podcatcher. For more information and to find past episodes, visit thenarrators.org. Thanks for listening. Yeah. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. <laughs>